Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, you jaundiced onions. If you're a brand new listener, I suggest listening to some previous episodes. If you're a regular listener, you know the crack. It's September 1st. It's September 1st. The reliable misery of winter awaits. And I'm feeling alright about it because I don't think we're going to see another lockdown this winter. So, so what? Fuck it. Bit of cold weather. I can go to the gym and I can get a pint if I want. This week I have a smashing interview for ye with the the director and screenwriter Jim Sheridan and we had tremendous crack. I'm going to play that for you in a while. Before I do that, I... So there's this there's this short story. It's the shortest short story ever written and it's attributed to Ernest Hemingway but people don't know if it's definitely Ernest Hemingway or not but it's the shortest short story ever written. And this is it. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. And that's magnificent. It's fantastic. Because it's only six words. But it's a short story. Because the story didn't happen in those words that you read. It happened in in, in the possibilities of your own mind. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. And I'm not going to get into the, the many possible reasons why a pair of baby shoes that were never worn are for sale but that the multitude of di- different directions that you can take that in that's the beauty of that short story it's it's written by the person reading it you know such a small amount of information can tell so much about the story about the setting about the characters it, it can tell so much and that little short story so, sometimes so sometimes algorithmic adverts remind me a bit of that short story. Now what I mean by algorithmic adverts is do you know when you're reading a website, usually a news website, uh, Sky News is particularly bad for it. RTE News can be bad for it. So let's just say you, you read a news article on Sky News and then you finished reading the article and you go to the very bottom of the page and there's a bunch of things that look like news articles, but they're not news articles. They're actually very weird adverts. And those adverts that are at the bottom of a legitimate news page, those fake news articles, they are customised for you. They're algorithmically generated depending on what you search for or what your age is or what your gender is. Basically, the data that your internet browser or your phone gets from you using it, it feeds this to these algorithmically generated adverts and then a little profile of you is generated by algorithmic ads. And sometimes it can it can actually paint a very unflattering picture of you. Like, for instance, as soon as I turned 30, there was, like, fake news articles at the bottom of Sky News saying... Men in Limerick are trying this solution for their impotency. And then I'm like, what the fuck? Who says I'm fucking impotent? Who says I can't get erections? And I'm now getting angry with a fake, a fake fucking algorithmically generated article at the bottom of Sky News for making the assumption that I can no longer get erections. Because when I was like 29, the adverts were for like fast fashion or for protein powder. And now all of a sudden it's talking to me about floppy mickeys 
And if impotency, if, if, if you live with impotency, no shame. Isn't it great that we live in an era where there are pills that fix it and it's not fucking 1980s with the cock ring. It's just, I'm a human being. If my computer thinks I've got impotency, I'm going to go, what's that about? Why do you think that? Should I be worried about impotency? What do you know that I don't know? Because you're the computer. And the reason it's so insulting is like, I wasn't googling. I I wasn't typing into the internet. I'm impotent. I wasn't looking for Viagra or Cialis or whatever you're selling me. I wasn't looking for them. Why are you making this assumption about me? And, And usually what it is, is it's just your age, your gender and what other people with similar interests that are your age and your gender and in your location are looking for and you get lumped in with that. But every so often, I'd be scrolling at the bottom of Sky News or RTE and there's a collection of adverts together and and they work like that Ernest Hemingway short story in that they visually describe a character and more often than not, I don't like the character that it's describing and what's even worse is it's supposed to be describing me because it's algorithmically generated to target me. And this week in particular, I had a very upsetting collection of fucking uh, algorithmically generated ads. So I clicked some article on Sky News this week. Probably something that was breaking news. Finished reading it, went to the bottom of the page. And there were six separate adverts disguised as news articles that are algorithmically generated to target me. So the first one, Doctor Reveals Natural Remedy for Painful Giants. Okay, that's accurate. That's accurate. I've got sore knees from running and I do search on Google quite a lot for solutions to my sore knees and exercises. Okay, you got me. I'm still not clicking on it because I know it's a fucking bullshit link. But you got me there. Then the second one. Turkey's hair transplants might be the solution to your hair loss. Now, nothing against anyone who's, who's experiencing baldness, but I'm not going bald. I'm not going to go bald. No one in my family is bald. I don't think about baldness. I don't Google baldness. The fuck? Why does my algorithm think I'm bald? Then, doctors are baffled. This is what detoxification through the feet looks like. Okay, why the fuck does my my algorithm think I need a, a detox? And I clicked on that one and that was all about liver and, and alcohol. And I'm like... I haven't drank in ages. I don't Google that much about drinking. I'm certainly not worried about drinking so much that it affects my liver. Why does the algorithm think I have a drink problem? Then it's like the other ad, UK doctor. It's it's like it vacuums out your digestive problems. So that advert thinks I have an ulcer. Then there's another advert. Top solicitors in Ireland 2021. See the list. Now, Now my algorithm thinks I have legal problems. And then the final one. Is Minecraft educational for kids? And I thought that was the odd one out. I thought that was the odd one out. But then it started to paint a much darker picture. This character that my algorithm thinks that I am. My algorithm thinks that I have children who I don't parent. And they're just on Minecraft, playing Minecraft all day. And I don't communicate with them. I don't attend to their needs. I just leave them on Minecraft. And the algorithm thinks... I need an article that tells me it's okay. Because who needs an article that says, is Minecraft educational for kids? A parent who's worried about how much Minecraft their kids are using. 
but doesn't want to take any responsibility for it. So like that Hemingway short story uses six words to describe this entire life, this, this a person or a scenario, my algorithmically generated ads at the bottom of my Sky News article were now painting a picture, but it was, it was quite insulting because I'm like, what, why the fuck does my algorithm think this of me? So my algorithm this week thinks that I'm a balding, unattentive parent with stomach ulcers, a drink problem, sore knees and legal problems. Now, my heart goes out to you if that's what you're dealing with, but it's not an accurate portrayal of my life. So I started to get worried because I'm like, what the fuck is up with my algorithm? I haven't Googled any of this shit. I haven't been looking for solicitors. I haven't been typing baldness. I haven't been talking about it. Minecraft, what the fuck? What's going on with my algorithm? And I started to get a little bit paranoid thinking, what if someone else is using my IP address on my computer? Or what if I'm getting hacked and some other person is Googling things on my behalf and this is influencing my algorithm? And I couldn't figure it out. And then I realised I bought a barbecue online a week ago and it arrived damaged. And then I asked them to replace the damaged part and the replacement arrived damaged. So then I've been having these heated arguments via email with an online barbecue company to the point that I'm threatening them with legal action. So the algorithm has been privy to the data of these emails because I'm typing them in using Google Chrome. And the algorithm just made these wild assumptions about who I am. The algorithm just said, this prick's pissed off all week about a fucking barbecue and he's threatening legal action. What a wanker. Because the algorithm knows my age and my gender. So it's just basically going, okay, Conti here is so angry about a barbecue that he's threatening legal action. So, how much is the barbecue? Says the algorithm, 250 quid. Fuck off, you sad cunt. He doesn't have a solicitor. And what is a Kamado barbecue for 250 quid? Sure, they're a thousand euros minimum. And this fella thinks that he can get a Kamado barbecue for 250 quid and not get ripped off? Fucking idiot. He doesn't have a any Anyone who threatens legal action over 250 euro barbecue does not have a solicitor. He's talking out of his arse. So he's going to need a list. A fake list of Ireland's best solicitors. Because he, he won't know the difference anyway. He's talking out of his hole. Also, I, I assume that he's also bald. So he's also bald or going bald. And that's why he's so angry. Then the anger is leading him to have drink problems. That's why he needs a detox. Then the stress of the drinking too much alcohol and being bald is causing him to have stomach ulcers. And then the most crushing assumption about me of all. Any man who's dealing with all this must also be a bad parent. This man has 10 year old children and he's so angry and drunk that they just play Minecraft all day long and he doesn't communicate with them. And this man needs an article to tell him that Minecraft is actually educational and it's okay. And, like, is the algorithm being creative here? Is the algorithm intelligent? Is it, ha- is it, is it guessing? No. How it works is it collates data 
So all the other men my age who are using the internet and giving their data to the internet to feed these advertising algorithms. So all these other men are doing this too. And the algorithm has basically found out that men who threaten legal action over broken barbecues tend to also have these qualities and now I've been lumped in as this one persona this one persona and you know what it made me want to do it made me want to back off and let those rats those barbecue rats get away with selling me faulty goods because the algorithm had shamed me the algorithm had shamed me and painted a portrait of me that I wasn't happy with I didn't like seeing that like a shit version of the picture of Dorian Gray so that's been my week (laughs) an incredibly pathetic week but I, I just want a fucking refund I want a refund on principle it's not right it's not right to fucking buy a barbecue to have it sent broken and then for the replacement to be broken because they can't package it properly I just want a refund and they're making that whole process really difficult for me they're making it incredibly difficult I have to send a barbecue to Amsterdam I bought it in an Irish website at .ie and I have to send it back to Amsterdam to get my 250 quid back and I know that they've done this because they go He's not going to go through with this and we're just going to keep his 250 quid and he's going to be stuck with a a shit Kamado barbecue. And no way. I'm just going to have to be a difficult, angry da about it and make them facilitate the return of the barbecue and give me my money back. And it is entirely my own fault. I wanted a Kamado barbecue. They're fantastic. uh, They're like outdoor ovens, but they're very expensive. They're minimum a thousand euro. And... I'm not spending a thousand euro on a fucking barbecue. So Big Aegis clicks on the... Oh, 250 quid. Wow, look at me. Gaming the system. Clever buy. But you know what? Play stupid games and you win stupid prizes. And I want a bent Dutch barbecue. So this this week's podcast isn't about uh, faulty barbecues. I interviewed the... Filmmaker and director Jim Sheridan, who is an absolute legend and has made some incredible films. I urge you to check out what would be the two best Jim Sheridan films to check out. In the Name of the Father with Daniel Day-Lewis and Pete Postlethwaite. Incredible film. And also The Field with Richard Harris and John Hart. Me and Jim had this conversation at a live socially distanced podcast that I did a couple of weeks ago. It was my first live gig in nearly two years where it's weird when you listen to it, you can't hear the audience because it was a socially distanced audience. So they were in this huge field, 400 people all spaced out on tables. But it was a really enjoyable day and and an enjoyable interview. And we speak about a bunch of shit. Like Jim also directed the biopic of the rapper 50 Cent's life so I have some great chats with Jim about him bringing 50 Cent for pints in Dublin Jim also recently made a documentary that a lot of people spoke about a true crime documentary for Sky 
about the horrific murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier in West Cork and Jim's documentary is called Murder at the Cottage and it was released simultaneously to another documentary about the same uh, situation that, that Netflix released. So we speak a bit about that as well. Um, but before I get into that interview, I, I'd like to do the ocarina pause because I don't want to interrupt the interview. I want to leave the interview play completely because we had a really good chat. We spoke about the process of filmmaking as well. There's, it's good crack, very enjoyable and Jim was lovely. So here's the ocarina pause where you're going to hear an algorithmically generated advert which depending upon things you Google search for and hopefully it won't insult you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com That was the Ocarina Pause. You would have heard an advert. I don't know what for, because it depends on what you search for. All right? Um, Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. Um, I've got significant legal fees over a dispute about a barbecue. Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't. I'm not fucking suing anyone over a barbecue. But if you consume this podcast frequently, if you listen to it a lot and you enjoy it and it brings some fun into your life, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month and for that you get four podcasts. And this is my full-time job. This is... I love doing this work. I adore that this is my job. It brings me great meaning. But it's also quite a lot of time-consuming work. And in order to do that, it needs to be my full-time job. So, if you enjoy it, uh, consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. If you can't afford to pay me, don't worry about it. You don't have to. You don't have to. If if you're out of work at the moment, whatever, chill out, you're fine. You can listen for free. But if you can't afford to pay me for the work that I'm doing, you're paying for the person who can't afford to listen for free. Everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast also patreon gives me full creative control over the podcast um i i do have the odd advertiser on this podcast to honor my contract with acast but most advertisers that get offered i turn them down because i'm not happy with either promoting what they're selling or 
they expect me to change the content of the podcast in order for them to advertise on this podcast, I can't be having that. Fuck that. So Patreon keeps this podcast independent and gives me full creative control to make what I want to make. Also, like the podcast, leave a review, suggest the podcast to a friend. That makes a huge difference. And do that not just for my podcast, but for any other independent podcast that you enjoy. Because independent podcasts need support. They, independent podcasts need support from listeners. Not just financial, but word of mouth. Because the podcast space has been saturated by big, huge podcasts that have massive financial backing. Follow me on Instagram, Blind by Boat Club. Catch me on Twitch once a week. Twitch.tv forward slash the Blind by Podcast. Thursday nights at half eight. Um, so without further ado, here is the chat that I had with the wonderful filmmaker and screenwriter, Jim Sheridan. Are you, do you want a mic stand, Jim? Are you happy hello, to hold hello, the mic hello, up? Hello, hello. Which, which do you prefer? Well, I don't have control of your arms. So which, may, which would make you more comfortable, Jim? Yeah, I think I'm okay with Did you, you, you brought your own Bluetooth speaker? Yeah, I did. What's that for? That's for playing you a clip if you want to hear it. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very fucking well prepared. So, Jim Sheridan, I didn't get to introduce you properly, Jim. You're a director and a screenwriter. You've made such classics as The Field, The Boxer, In the Name of the Father, My Left Foot. And... So, an absolute legend, an absolute legend. I'm going to take off my hat, Jim, because it's out of respect and also because it's incredibly hot under the sun. It is, yeah. I wasn't expecting this heat. It's better than rain, though, isn't it? Um, So, Jim, I want to chat to you about what's your process of beginning... Like, when you're screenwriting something or or directing... What's your process? What makes you want to start a story? And uh, It's hard, you know. You never know uh, entirely what makes you want to do it, you know. And sometimes, like, I'd start with this story that I hated lawyers and solicitors and barristers. And so... I found one guy who was a solicitor and I liked him and he had an idea for a script. So I said, yeah, well, I'll try to get to like one solicitor. So what's it about? And he said, it's about Standing Bear, the Indian. And that started out just like as a courtroom drama to, to understand the first civil rights case in America certainly involving Native Americans, but probably the first ever. And Judge Dundee was asked whether the Indian could be admitted to court under habeas corpus. And uh, and the prosecution said no, he couldn't because he was a savage and not human. And he wanted to bury his son back in the... Oh, what year was this, Jim, when they were saying that? 1868. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to bury his son. So it started out as a small story, and then as I would, you know, I start to write it, it kind of has legs, if you know what I mean, and you start getting interested in it. 
And I wouldn't really consider myself like a writer in the normal sense. You know, I'm much more like a storyteller. Yeah. And uh, so I have to find a story. And every time I start, I end up back with the same story. And this is just a new version of it. What's the essence of a good story for you, Jim? What are you looking for, for a good story? I'm looking for something that kind of hurts me a bit. That, you know, what I mean is that I could get exposed by making it. And I then know that, yeah, this has, it, this has potential damage and I better get it right. Do you mean if, if damage is in what it could do to the outside or internally, your own emotions? It, probably I mean initially outside. Okay. Uh, I'm not that... Um, yet my own emotions I don't know. I, I, I think like I'm now older, but I do think I still have a great degree of rage, you know what I mean? And I only notice this when you press one of five or six buttons, you know, <laughs> and then I'll just fucking go off. So rage is a motivating factor for you, something that would anger you. Yeah. Let's yeah. take, for instance, an um, incredible film, In the Name of the Father. Yeah. And you made that, was that about 92, 93? Yeah. Like, what was it like? That must have stirred a lot of shit. Because yeah. that was at a time where politically, if you did anything that looked um, sympathetic towards yeah. Ireland you would have been savage to bits. Yeah. What was that like, making, the process of making that film? And why did you want to make it? What was it about the story of the Guildford Four that you said, I need to make this a fucking huge film? You know, it's kind of... It, it, it's weird in that I didn't want to make the Guildford Four or the Birmingham Six as a movie because I thought the names themselves were dehumanising. Mm-hmm turning people into numbers. Mm -hmm. And I was never that interested in that type of story. So when Terry George said it to me, I was like, oh, I don't know. Four characters, we have to follow the whole four of them. It's too complicated. And then he said, well, Jerry Conlon's father was put in the prison. I was like, bang. The light went off. Because father-son story really appealed to me. And so I start following that and just focusing it down to a father-son story, you know? And making it was fairly easy until we went to England, and there it was difficult, especially when we were doing the explosion. And everybody was so fucking nervous that, you know, the scene... Because you essentially have a load of Irish people in London saying, we want to make a bomb today, but it's one of the good ones. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's only a make-believe bomb, but yeah. it, it could kill you. Yeah, and there might be a real one around the corner later on, but it wasn't us. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, what happened was the policeman, the head of the police, start giving me, you know, like, you have to be finished by 11 or there's a night shoot. And I was like, well, that's going to be hard. Well, you ha I repeat, you know, you have to be finished. So everybody got nervous. They set the bomb, and then they forgot. Oh, for fuck's sake. They forgot that we hadn't done the shot where the people entered the pub. So I knew we're going to blow the fucking set up, and we haven't done the one shot we need. 
So the cop was like, no, well, you can't do that. So I just said, well, here's the situation. That bomb is now set and I would advise everybody to stand back a mile. So you became in that moment the IRA. You're exactly. phoning in the warning, except you're doing it as you to the head of the police. I am. I'm doing it right to them, saying, <laughs> unless you stand back, somebody could get injured. And while they were standing back, I sent in a fellow to defuse it. And then I did the shot, and then we blew the place up. Fucking hell. <laughs> and are you glad that you... Because I was looking at uh, The Irishman by Martin Scorsese yeah. recently. And they'd used, in my opinion, just far too much digital stuff. Like, there's a scene where they broke a window. Yeah. And they fucking did it digitally. It's like, come on, it's a Netflix project. You can break a fucking window. Yeah. Are I, you glad that you got to do the spectacle of pyrotechnics and actually blowing something up rather than digital? How do you feel about that? That's a very interesting question. It goes to the heart of... It, this might take me a minute or two to explain. Do you mind that? It's a live podcast. We're here to chat. And these people are here chilling out. I'm sure it'll be grand. So do you remember 24 frames a second? Yeah. Well, that was trompe l'oeil, yeah? Mm -hmm. It was basically the ability to fool you that what you were watching was reality. But between each frame... There was a small, like the top of this bottle, was a small piece of film that was blank. So when you watched a movie back in the old 24 frames a second day, you were watching approximately 10 to 15 minutes of black, mm -hmm. of trance. And it was very relaxing if, you can, if you're old enough to remember film. And if you put an ad in that little part there saying, buy popcorn or diet coke, the place was packed out by, yeah. It was long enough that you could do subliminal advertising. You could do subliminal advertising. And so subliminally you were seeing the darkness, seeing the trance, seeing the, it's, and it's relaxing on the eye. Now, when they got rid of that, it's, it's just before I come to that, Film is essentially a spiritual engagement, which nobody ever talks about, but I'll come back on that. But when you, had the, when you replace the 24 frames with pixels, mm -hmm. it's much easier to change the surface. So now you can have fellas flying over the stage and doing all sorts of cartoonish stuff. But the, but the consequence is that the audience know it's not real. And they know they don't have to believe it. So their belief system gets crashed. And they move into an area of not believing any fucking thing they see. And that's a tragedy. And it's not a, talked about. And so that then extends further into the internet and fake news and lack of trust. But spiritually... When a movie starts, you're watching it as... You're, if it contradicts your beliefs, you'll reject it. So nobody in England's going to go and see In the Name of the Father. And 
nobody in America is going to see a Scorsese movie or a black movie in the red states. And that's been true for 100 years. So those European movies I made never got seen in the flyover states because their belief system rejected European movies and rejected Scorsese, any Italian, any Catholic priest. They were make my day, you know? They're in Clint Eastwood, revenge, make my day. Yeah. So I said to the studios one day, why don't you send me to one of these places? They go, we never go, right? Now, I then did a bit of research, and the man who was the most, the biggest cinema distributor, filmmaker in the early 30s was an Irish man called Joe Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And he understood from the ledger, because he was obsessed with figures, that the English movies and the French movies, comedies were dead. They didn't travel. And comedy never travels, which is the problem. And he then had a system, he understood that the only English movies that really performed were Merchant Ivory type, you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Royal Family, Posh Frocks, Big Houses. And so when he was stopped being uh, president by Roosevelt, he asked for the job in the court of St. James. Was, was he related to President Kennedy, this? His father. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And he, when he got to the court of St. James, they said, well, the system is, you walk in, sorry, the king is, comes in, he's there, you walk into the church, you come forward, and he engages you with the sword as being the ambassador. And Joe Kennedy said, I have a slight problem with that. And, and the guy said, what's that? He said, I, I can't take my hat off to another man. I only take my hat off in church. And the English were crazy. They hated him. And what he was doing was figuring out how the whole thing worked. So he was obsessed with the way that the royalty and they established this... Americans in the red states and in every state are upward mobile. They're not democratic at heart. None of us are. We all love Princess Di and the wedding and the whole thing. So he understood to get past the Catholicism that he had to make Camelot okay, for the yeah. president. So the president, he ran the presidency as a, he ran the attempt to be president for JFK as a movie with a princess and a prince. Wow. And the whole thing bypassed Catholicism. He would never have got elected without it. So you're saying that Kennedy took the, the narrative that suits these red states, yeah. fed that narrative, and then all of a sudden they're no longer looking at an Irish Catholic who they'd never vote for. Yeah. He took it from royalty. He took it from the movies. Wow. Wow. And it's still true to, to, to this day, you know? And but that thing you were saying earlier, you're saying that, that films have lost their the spectacle. We don't believe in the spectacle anymore. I, I, I mean, I, you, you mentioned there the, the Trump de Lille. How do you pronounce it? I think it's Trump Lai. Trump, tr tr is fool, that how you Who speaks French? Fool the eye, yeah. Fool the eye, Trump Lai. Yeah. Um, 
the earliest films that people went to see in the cinema were like one of the first ones, a train was coming towards yeah. the camera yeah. and people literally left the cinema. They couldn't yeah. believe it. They yeah. thought they were going to get crushed by yeah. a train. Yeah. Are you saying that cinema has lost that capacity and because of this, it, it's storytelling is more difficult? I think that it's a, it's a belief system. So when you're doing a fiction, the, the belief bar is here. And when you're doing a documentary, the belief part is here. Yeah. Which is why they put people in documentaries out of focus and all. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, it is him, but it's not him. Mm -hmm. And that's fucking ancient. Stupid. So I was doing this documentary recently, and I, what I wanted to do, which I couldn't do because of COVID, I wanted the actors to be the investigators of the murder. Is this the Murder at the Cottage yeah. documentary you made for Sky? Yeah. Yeah. And so I had somebody playing like Ian Bailey and Jules. And it, it's amazing that I did one, the only scenes I got to do were two or three. But I do, did the scene where Ian Bailey was arrested. And he comes in in handcuffs into his partner's house. He lived in a separate studio. And, you know, he shows the handcuffs like a victim. And I'm like, oh, Ian, because he's there. Yeah. I said, why is the other police car there? Because I just staged it as it happened. Yeah. And he was kind of like, I, I don't know. And so I go to Jules and I say, Jules, why is the other police car there? And she says, because they're arresting me. And I go to Ian. I say, Ian, did you, you've told me this five times. And you never said they were arresting Jules at the same time. And he goes, oh, were they arresting you? And she goes, yeah. And he was so in his world that he didn't notice that his partner was being arrested. So then I said, okay, okay. And then I said, and Jules, remember, you went and took the photographs which disappeared. The first piece of evidence that disappeared was the first photograph taken of the scene. So she took a photograph and I said, so we got a camera, it's from the 90s, so is that your camera? Was it like that? She goes, no. I turned to the production designer, who's a brilliant designer, Derek, and I go, Derek, I asked you to get the fucking camera. He goes, I, I, I did, I asked such and such. We went to the person who asked, who had asked Ian Bailey, what was the camera? Could, did they have the camera? He said, no. Jules says, I do have it. So she ran up and got it, and she had a lens that lent. So everybody had portrayed her as an amateur camera person who didn't take the right shot. Yeah. But it's only when you get into the remake and you're walking, you're like you're literally in the boots of the accused or the killer or whoever that you begin to understand on a level that you can't understand by the brain. You know, you have to engage your whole body in a search for the truth, which is what actors do. So actors tell lies to find the truth. Legal people tell the truth to hide lies. Yeah. And so the, the case of this murder case is a case where hundreds of legal documents and statements are all, in effect, hiding lies. And I just thought that I could 
find some road to the truth by crossing, blurring the line between fiction and documentary. And I'm going to go back and make another version which will be that, which I hope ends up. Yeah, why are you making a second one? A lot of people were asking me that on the internet. Why are you making a second documentary about the, that murder done in West Cork? Well, you know, it might be that I'm not able to actually make it because I have to go on and do something else, but I will have people filming stuff, and it's mostly made in the edit. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm doing that is the case is still open. It's still an ongoing murder investigation. Yeah. And seeing that the Irish police can't ask any questions in France, I will. And seeing that... Okay. And seeing that the French have decided that it's over, they're not going to ask questions. Yeah. So, in, in effect, it's becoming a... It's become a situation where it's convenient to have this eccentric guy as the named killer, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I just want to take it back to your earlier career, Jim. You're from Sheriff Street, you are? I am, yeah. What was it like? A lot of the questions that I got asked on the internet when I said I was going to have you on is people talking about nowadays how difficult it would be to get into cinema if you don't come from a background of huge wealth or if you don't have relatives who are already in, in the industry. What was it like for you coming, coming out of Sheriff Street and like becoming a director? What was your, your initial processes? Well, that's a very interesting question and I would agree with that in many ways, you know. Um, that... It's, in England, Ireland's bad enough. In England, if you don't go to Oxford or Cambridge, you have no chance. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the whole system is over there is run by that kind of club. And, you know, essentially, American cinema is a lot of rich people because really people who are ambitious wouldn't be going into film to make money. Joe Kennedy left it. He said there was no money in cinema, so mm. he started the Mercantile Bank, which is bigger than this park in Chicago. And, you know, I was from... So Sheriff Street and Seville Place meet at the church, which is mm -hmm. there. It's like a triangle. And I was in Seville Place, and my parents had a lodging house. And so... Like, I met everybody before I was 14. Like, yeah. every lunatic from every culture, every, <laughs> you know, everybody from the north of Ireland, the whole lot stayed in their house. Yeah. And that was very interesting to me on a just understanding people level. Sheriff Street was kind of like a place where, you know, you'd have a kid... I remember on Monday you got brawn or something, and on Friday you got jam, and on Wednesday you got a curtain bun mm -hmm. and a little bottle of milk, and I hated the milk. But I loved the curtain bun on the Wednesday, and it was the only thing I ate. Yeah. So 
sometimes you wouldn't get the curtain bun because there might be 42 and there's 48 in the class. And one day I was coming home and I can't remember why I said to the kid, I hate those curtain buns. And I used to put the Sambos in my bag. Yeah. And this kid said, have you, have you got... I said, yeah, I have the jam. That was from Friday. And he said, oh, give, give me the jam. And I gave it to him. He ate two weeks of sandwiches. And they were like cardboard the last two he was eating. And I realized how fucking hungry he was. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. And so that were the... But in our house, so long as you could get your hand on the plate before the lodgers, you were well fed. Yeah. So we were kind of the well-off people from Sheriff Street. But I had to, like, fight Jojo Martin and people like that. And you had to learn how to be defend yourself in a way, you know? But at what point did you say to yourself, I wouldn't mind making films? I was about 16 or 17. I, rewind that question a little bit. The first film I saw that I had control over was Shane. Because in the place I lived until I was 10, Abercorn Road, there was a Protestant church. And the, the roof, there were holes in the roof and there were pigeons in the church. Yeah. And I remember going in and seeing these pigeons all over the prod church and they were pooing everywhere. And I was like, the prods definitely are the devil, you know, like... <laughs> You just thought, this is what happens in all Protestant churches. Yeah. They close the doors. Well, they've got a fucking eagle on the altar. <laughs> yeah. So you would assume they'd then let all the pigeons in and they shit everywhere and then maybe the, the eagle comes to life and kills them or something. Yeah. If you don't know what a Protestant church is. Yeah. And, and so they were having a benefit to repair the roof. And I was not going to that because I knew I couldn't contribute to the devil. But my friend Anto said, but Cheryl, it's only sixpence in and it's tenpence into the fucking strand. And our monetary decision overcame our morals. And we went down and paid 6p in. And me and Anto sat watching Shane. And what was Shane? Who was it? Was that it? That wasn't Clint Eastwood, was it? No, it, it was a cowboy movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the projector was in the aisle and the projector kept breaking and the film fell on the floor and they kept repairing it then they got fed up and they couldn't repair it and they decided they were going to do a little show so they all put on blackface <laughs> and they were all like this and then they all turned around with the blackface and I was like I'm in hell <laughs> and they had an operation on a man on a table, and they put... Did they just make up a show? Yeah, they made up a show. So you went to a Protestant church yeah. that had a broken roof with yeah. pigeons inside in it. Yeah. Then they decide, we're going to so show Shane yeah. so that we can pay for it. Shane doesn't work because the projector's broken. Yeah. And then they go, fuck, we better put on a show. Yeah. So, and it's a black and white minstrel show where someone's receiving an operation. Yeah. <laughs> go on. <laughs> and... They pulled this guy's heart out. And his heart was an alarm clock that went off. <laughs> and they, he jumped up off the table and they chased him round the table. 
like in a Bruegel painting. Yeah. But, but they could never catch him. And I fainted. And I was carried out. <laughs> right? And I knew the power of theatre then. Fuck. Wow. And I knew, too, that film was fake. Yeah. You know, because I could see the projector and everything, and the magic was gone. Why did you go into, like, film and not theatre? No, I first went into theatre. And did you ever head down to, the, like, the Abbey when you were a young fella? Because that's yeah. not too far from, from Sheriff Street. Did you ever, like, decide to go down there and, and, and see what was on? <laughs> I went to the Abbey School when I was 18. Of acting. Okay. And we had a teacher there who was a complete genius. Mm -hmm. And he was from Chicago. And he was a filmmaker in France. And he gave up film to come and teach in the Abbey. And his name was Frank Dermody. And his first lesson to us was he had an upright piano. Mm -hmm. And he got up on the piano and he lay on it. And he said, you see, I am totally relaxed. Every bone in my body. Wait. And for 48 minutes, he tip, 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 until he fell off the piano. And he stood up and he said, you see, I didn't hurt myself. I was totally relaxed. Go home. <laughs> I don't what was he trying to show you? Deep relaxation and not giving a fuck when you're on stage. When did that, did that make uh, becoming a filmmaker then seem something? What was the moment for you where you're like, I can fucking try this. I can, this thing I want, I, I reckon I can try that. Well, you know, I always wanted to make the films, but in the theatre, <clears throat> I would do shows that were very filmic. Mm -hmm. And I got trapped in doing that, you know, um, like, from I was 19 till, you know, for 20 years, I was doing theatre. And I had, like, people like Neil Jordan in it yeah. and Vinnie McGee. And it was only in 81, when I was 31, I went to do a film course because I was... I wanted to move into movies, but I didn't know if I was any good at it, you know? Yeah. Um... Is it true that you took the rapper 50 Cent for pints in Dublin? Yeah. Yeah. You... What? <laughs> so you, you, direct, you directed the biopic 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. Yeah. You went on the lash with 50 Cent in Dublin. I did, you know. Can we hear about that, man? <laughs> 50 was a great laugh. Um... But I tell you, the most, some of the, so I suddenly found myself, like, telling Dr. Dre what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, Dre, could you do that again? What, what drew you towards that project? Because I think the, mad, like, what, the maddest thing about that film when we heard about it was like, what, Jim Sheridan's directing the 50 Cent biopic? Yeah. What, what, what how, how the fuck did that happen? I always love rap. And, yeah, I remember this kid from America in Trinity, and he used to do this rap song, and I wasn't that good. I had a band, but I couldn't really sing. Yeah. 
but I could kind of talk, you know? Yeah. So this was my favorite song because I could say it, you know? Yeah. And it was Oscar Brown Jr. Did you ever hear of him? No. Uh, I could do the first verse, yeah? Go ahead. It's a hard one to do now because you really can get embarrassed. Give me a clap there. I've always lived by this golden rule. Whatever happens, don't blow your cool. You gotta have nerves of steel. And never show folk how you honestly feel. I live my whole life this way. For example, take yesterday. I breezed home happy bringing her my pay. Her note read, so long sappy, I've run away. I threw myself down across our empty bed, and this is what I said. <laughs> oh, fucking fantastic, Jim. Huh? That was fantastic. Um. <laughs> And what? <laughs> Tell us about 50 Cent in Dublin, please. <laughs> well, you know, he was on in the pint and he was staying in some hotel and I brought him down Sheriffer, you know? And, um, you know, Sheriffer was the exact same as where he's from in Queens. Yeah. And he totally got it. You know, we really got on. Like, he used to tell me I was his da, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that came about because of um, an event on... Uh, it, it, not that much happened in Sheriffer, you know, other than we had a few gargles and every, the, all the kids. And Gemma Dunleavy's sister was there. Getting oh, yeah, her, Gemma Dun yeah. Getting her... Yeah, she's great, isn't she? Fantastic. And uh, so we were shooting in Toronto and... Like, 50 wasn't that well known in Toronto. He was the biggest star in America. He'd just done In the Club. Mm -hmm. Find me in the club, out full of booze. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, he, uh, he, he, when he would get back to New York, he would get uh, $800 in singles. $100 in tens and a $100 bill. And he put the $100 bill in the middle and he'd go out in the Bronx and he'd throw the money up in the air and all the kids would scramble for it like crazy. And I was like, wow, 50, that's mad. And like, so I said, yep, yeah, that's good. That's good for walking around, you know, money. And we came to shoe and he had the money in the shoe. Yeah. So... He threw the fucking money in the air, and we'd, we'd about 2,000 watching the shoot, and then we'd about 10,000 getting the money and all. And I was like, 50, if this was Ireland, if this was Sheriff or, or Liverpool even, worse, some mother would have already thrown her kid out the fucking window and broken his legs and got 10 million off you. <laughs> you know? And I said, you should be careful. Don't do it again. 
And he goes, I won't do it again. So you got to understand how quickly you can get out of control on a movie. And they had this guy who I knew up for cutting the head off an actor. Remember with the helicopter? Yeah. And the studio heads all dumped it on the director. I'll open that for you, Jim. They all dumped it on, thank you, dumped it on the director. So I rang the studio head and I said, listen, 50's throwing money around and I didn't like the studio head uh, around the set and I'm wondering what I should do. And he's like, why are you ringing me? I said, because you have to tell me to keep going. <laughs> I'll get back to you. So then I went to the, to the policeman, Ray. I said, Ray, if 50 throws the money again, arrest him. And Ray's looking at me. And I went to 50's manager and said, if 50 fucking throws that money again, there's going to be a row. So, and he promised he wouldn't do it, and he's a sweetheart. And he, then he got up the hill, he gets carried away, all the kids are shouting. He throws the money. It's a scramble from hell. And then all his security act like the rock star, and they bustle him into a fucking van, start reversing, kids are nearly hurt, get out of the way. They drive fast through the kids, and I'm like, fucking had it, you know? So I lost my temper, and, I, and the main the stage guy came to me, and he's like, he was great, this guy, and he said, do you want me to talk to 50? And I'm like, if you talk to 50, I lose me authority. I said, no. So I said, I'll have to talk to him. I didn't know what I was going to say. So I went into the big trailer, you know, and I stood beside the guy who I knew had the knife because I'd seen him on CCTV footage stabbing fellas at a fight backstage. And I got really friendly with him. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's called Sheriff Street Knowledge. <laughs> and... I just went in the trailer and I held him by the arm and I said, and I had no idea what I was going to say and I started off and I was like, 50, I told you not to throw the fucking money. And he's like, yeah. And they're all looking at me. I said, are you a fucking gangster for real? And he was like, well. I said, are you a fucking gangster or, or what? I said, fucking, get a fucking gun out but don't be fucking throwing money for kids to get hurt. Yeah. Right? So he came out with a trailer, and he said to me, Jim, you know, I thought about it, and that was a fucking mad of you to do that, but I agree with you, and I'm apologizing. And I took it out of my pocket, the name of the studio head, the policeman, his manager, the first AD, I said, you have to apologize to every one of them. And he went around apologizing to them all. And then he came to me and he said, nobody tells me the truth. He said, you're the first person that's told me the truth in about five fucking years. Okay. So you're me dad. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, I've, I've, read, I've read interviews with 50 Cent and he mentions a lot about you roaring and screaming at him and he really respects you for it. Like, he really, he's really fond of you for shouting at him. Yeah, I, I, I did love him, you know. I lo he knew I loved him, so it's not a fucking problem. But uh, the, the, one of the interesting things was poor Ray, who was the head policeman. So I went to Ray and I said, Ray, and he had all his cops around him. I said, 
why did you not arrest 50 when I told you? And he's like, Jimmy, you're serious. And I go, what's up, Ray? Because he was very nervous. And he said, well, Jim, you know, I was in 9-11. I was in the towers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And so what? So he lost his nerve. I said, so, okay. So let me get this straight. So the people at the top of the cop said, what are we going to do with Ray? Because he can't really work in the real world. So let's put him in the movies. Okay, yeah. Right? That's what people think of the movies. They think it's somehow not the real world. Yeah. And he was one of the... I stayed friendly with Ray. But it's that kind of... You get in that world and you can become abusive... You can become a Harvey. You can be... I've seen it all lots of times, you know? And because I was bullied a bit in school, I always react against it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, You directed The Field. Yeah. One question about that. What was the decision... The Field is absolutely fucking incredible. One of my favourite films. Um, What was the decision... To make, because in, in the play, in the John B. Keane play, it's a British man who comes yeah, to buy yeah, the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you change it to an American? What was the thinking? Uh, crass. You know, have an American in the movie. Ah, oh, fuck. I thought, is yeah. that all? No. But, but get that, put that aside. It's just that America was the returned... Irish fella, you know? Yeah. And I didn't really want to focus it onto the English. I just wanted it to be about land hunger, you know? And I think the Englishman would have made it too famine too. That's the thing. So I've obviously have huge respect for the original play, but yeah. by making it an American, uh-huh. it made it more potent. It made it uh-huh. more, for me, it made it about losing our values to capitalism. Yeah. And, to a, and, a, and a, a subtle critique as well on, on Irish America. You yeah. know, and I, it's... Yeah. That struck me harder than the English person, which you kind of just under... A bit cliched. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the American... England's no longer the empire. America's the empire. Yeah. So that's what, it was, that's what I was kind of trying to hint at. What was Richard Harris like, working with Richard Harris? Oh, um, that was, it, 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 let's say it presented different difficulties than working with Daniel Day-Lewis. That's what I'm wondering. Did Richard Harris become the bull and was he... Did he become that character and was he difficult to deal with as a result? Because there's no reasoning with the bull. No. <laughs> no, he, he did become the character, but it was a kind of... You know, I found out... He, he, Richard loved Peter O'Toole. Yeah. And I knew O'Toole well, you know. And there was probably no greater performer in film than O'Toole, you know, he's like so amazing. Uh, but he said to Richard, don't 
act in the way it shots. Force them to come in on you. Yeah. So they were dealing with the Hollywood system where the close-ups meant everything. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't act that well in the wide shot. So they had to come in on them. What? Yeah. And, and so, that's basically forcing your hand as a director to yeah. include a lot of close-ups. Yeah. Wow. And so Richard had done uh, Camelot forever, seven years. Like Richard knew the name of the guy selling the raffle tickets in Camelot. Mm-hmm. And he sacked them after six weeks. And I said, why do you do that, Richard? He says, after six weeks, they all start robbing. <laughs> That's <laughs> such a, a limerick thing to say. <laughs> he was very much a limerick yeah. guy. And he, he was brilliant. You had to see him on stage. And he said to me, I've got five auras on stage, but I've only four in film. And on stage, he had this complete unpredictability that was scary. Mm-hmm. You never knew what he was going to do, including looking at the other actors and making faces and telling people in the audience, stop eating their fucking stupid biscuits. And, yeah. you know? and you never knew what he was going to do. And so when we were on the movie, we were doing the very first big scene, which I was really didn't want to do. But and what was the, big, the first big scene you shot? Where he talks to the priest and he says you know oh yeah you know my mother was in one corner of the field and i was in the other and i saw her fall down you know yeah keel over and i went to her and my father came over and my father felt whatever you know knew she was dead or she was dying and he said to me fetch a priest and i said let's bring the hay in first <laughs> yeah Let's bring the hay in for it. And when Richard did that scene, he, he was very over the top, right? Yeah. Very theatrical. And I was like, initially I thought he's been too long on stage. Then I thought he's overdoing it deliberately to see if I notice. Yeah. And then I thought, this is fucked. And he got to the end of the scene and I involuntarily went, cut, put my head down. And when my head was just about there, I heard the first AD clapping, then the cameraman, then the entire crew giving Richard a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was looking at me. And I was down like this trying to figure, what will I say when I look at him? And I knew if I said something in between I'd lose power or, you know. Yeah. So I just said, that's the most over-the-top fucking acting I ever saw. And he was shocked. <laughs> and did like, you feel he did a piece for stage yeah. there rather than doing something for film? Uh, yeah. And this impressed everybody who was physically present? Yeah. And, the, and, and I knew it wouldn't be easy after that. So we did about seven takes, and on the seventh take, he shouted at me, I'm not even acting. And I said, good. and the effect of that was to the effect was that I knew it was going to be a war but the effect was he he acted in every scene Mm -hmm. and so you're dead right we got to this scene where 
you know where he has to go out and say, he has to say something like, why did you torture the widow? Yeah. And so we're doing the scene and he says to this Sean Bean, why did you torture the mother? I, I go, Richard, it's the, the widow, mother. Mm -hmm. It's the widow, Richard. And John Hort got the script and quietly, when I wasn't there, went up to Richard and said, you know, Richard, I looked at the first two drafts and the present draft, and, and it is the widow. Fuck off. So I'm like, oh, okay. So for about... But how does he get to make that type of decision about the script? Like, what, what, did he have a reasoning behind it, or was he just being stubborn? It was, he was so odd that he, he, he told me in the middle of all this, you know, he, he had a thing with his mother and father, I think, but he kept saying mother until it became murder. Mother, okay. mother. And I kept saying widow. And for six hours, we sat there saying one word to each other. Like a Samuel Beckett play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And then I said, look, Richard, it's, the light's gone, so I'm going to put the camera up. But if you say fucking mother, that's the end of it. And he didn't. He went out and he said widow, but he said it with such demented. Remember, he's on the back of the car. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was like fucking mad half the movie. But it was a different type of... And he's amazing in it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and he's an amazing character. You mentioned twice there, you, you said you're conscious of not, about not giving away power yeah. when you're a, a, a director. What, what do you mean by that? You got 400 people behind you all saying, next shot, next shot, next shot, next shot. Mm -hmm. And you've got 10 people in front of you saying, will we do it again? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's very easy to move on to the next shot and not get it right. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it, to me, it's, it's a thing about, I don't, we, none of us get to tell the truth really in social environments or at home. Or, so you got this special spiritual world where you have a chance of telling the truth. So I don't want to be there there's no point in me being there if I'm going to lie, you know? There's just no yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, fuck them all. Mm -hmm. it's good. I don't care what happens, you know? Um, you've worked with Daniel Day-Lewis loads. Yeah. What is it about Daniel Day-Lewis that has you with a continued uh, relationship? Just the fact that I can get him, <laughs> you know? He's so good, you know? Mm -hmm. um, he's like one of a kind, special... Um, performer that you know he just can do anything you know mm -hmm. and uh, my favorite bits ever making movies were just doing the acting bits if the actor wasn't there and I was doing it with him because it was so easy because he's so real it's like I'm talking to you you know it's that relationship there's nothing beyond you know and this business, when you read about Daniel Day-Lewis, that he goes completely into character for the entirety, uh -huh. is, is that exaggerated or is that legit? I mean, can, if, if he's fully in, in the character, can you have a conversation with the man that, if you need to have it? Like, what are the yeah. boundaries there? Well, you could, but, like, see, 
I'm five five, and on good days when I was younger, I was five six. <laughs> right? And to get into the Royal Air Force, you had to be five six, and I was rejected because they said I wasn't exactly five six. So I was always the small guy in Sheriffer, having to be careful and look out for myself. So when I got onto that set of, uh, you know, my left foot, and Daniel was in character, he intimidated all the other actors. Mm -hmm. And he was the center of attention. And I was like, that's perfect. Nobody's going to pay any attention to me and not notice I know nothing. And I can make the movie away over mm -hmm. here. So for me, it was a big liberation, you know, to have somebody so committed and so believing in this world that, you know, he transferred into, you know. So you, did you find yourself getting self-confidence from the, the, the way that Daniel was acting? Yeah, I, I, I would never, I knew I would never have to have a row with him other than saying that I don't think it's art, I think it's communication. And I just want them to communicate with me and I don't give a fuck how good he is with the art. Mm -hmm. My job is to just see if it's true, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think my thing as a director is very performance-oriented and actor-oriented and, and that stands me in good stead when I'm interviewing people or because I, I have a very good x-ray interior for when people are not telling the truth you know mm -hmm. and uh, and that's kind of it's all about the truth you know it's all about trying to get to that um you mentioned the painter peter bruegel earlier yeah. and are are there any painters that are influence you as a director well you know the one that influences me it's probably the one that started out most like an Irish painter, and that's Van Gogh. Yeah. And he started out with dark, bog-like colors. Yeah. And he looks like the most depressed guy in the world. Mm -hmm. And in the potato eaters, for instance, yes. his mother is looking past him to his dead brother. Yeah. And I knew that from my own parents and from people mm -hmm. who've lost a child, that they become obsessed with the, the dead. And Van Gogh had, has this thing that's like, um, he has a thing in his paintings, which is, he, he's getting the muse, he's getting inspiration, he's getting attention from, let's say, the mother figure, or the muse, and at the same time, he's kind of suicidal. Mm -hmm. So it's so when he's doing, for instance, a, a, a portrait of Gaucher or any of them, I think that you can always feel that they're doing him a big favor and they don't really want to be there. From his the people that are sitting in his bed, yeah, he's and he's fucking like, lovely, yeah. And he knows that. Yeah. And he's like, I'll fucking paint you here. Wow. I'll make you a present. Yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah, he's yeah. not, he's getting the interior. He's get. it's the emotion that he's getting. So when you're making a movie, 
you're dealing with emotions. Yeah. And emotions are invisible. Yeah. Therefore, you're dealing with the invisible. Yeah. And anything that you do visibly only fucks up the invisible. So if you make marks on the ground for actors to hit or whatever, or lights, you can do one type of film that way, which is a Hitchcock-type, Kubrick-type movie. And I wouldn't be able to do that. I'm, I'm more in performance and allowing the actors to be free and trying to catch something that's gone with the wind, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just could be gone, maybe not, wouldn't work, you know? It's kind of a high wire act, you know? What do you think of the approach of uh, the likes of Ken Loach, where they offer a huge amount of freedom? Would you, is, is that something that would, how would I, you feel about that method? I would say Ken is contradictory in that he is the most controlling person who offers loads of freedom. Yeah. In other words, he doesn't give the actors any script. So I've been trying to do movies with people who worked with Ken, and they go, Jim, you need to rewrite the script. I'm going, when you're doing it with Ken, you don't fucking have a script, so why are you worried about the script? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So people latch on to... Once the rules are established that it doesn't matter, it's what you say, Mm -hmm. that's very good. It has its limits... But Ken is a supreme artist, and movies come out of strong individuals, and he's a very strong individual. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of making more or less the same movie, mm-hmm. but it's a great movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take one more question. We have one here. The Netflix documentary that came out at the same time as your Sky one had quite a different perspective. Could you give us your thoughts on the Netflix documentary? Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they purport to show in a documentary Ian Bailey's coat in a bucket that it wouldn't fit in, that he bleached it, that it was in a shower. And here's the problem with that. Jules Thomas doesn't have a shower. And here's the second problem. The woman who said that in the program, the Italian girl made a sworn statement to the police saying she couldn't identify the clothes in the bath. And there was no shower. Now, it sounds very unkind and ungenerous of me complaining about another director's work, even if it is lazy and shoddy. But, but that's not the issue. The issue is, this is an ongoing murder investigation. So get off the fucking stage. Which are recreations that aren't true. If you're, that's what I said about believability. The audience are believing. So when they show that picture, everybody in the world, in the 160 countries that Netflix say they're in, believe that this is what Ian Bailey did. So I'll tell you what happened to the coat. He went up the hill, and he got a breeze block, and he murdered the woman. And he got blood all over the coat. And he came down, he invited three students into his house. He let them go into the bathroom, where he was seemingly bleaching the coat on Christmas Eve. He wore the coat on Christmas Day to the Christmas swim. The girl who made that statement was with him on Christmas Day when he wore the coat. 
He burned it on Stevens's day in a fire. The police picked it up on the 10th of February, detailed it in their report and sworn statements, and then it disappeared. That's the magic coat. Um, it's to, some things are too serious to let people away with them. Does that make sense? There's a thing in screenwriting called Chekhov's Gun, yeah. where at the very start of a film, an object is introduced, and then you don't reference it until the very end. I'm going to do that now with your Bluetooth speaker that you brought out <laughs> at the start. <laughs> what the fuck is that about? You need the money. <laughs> this is the second Jim bitch moment. So the bitch now is about a fella who wrote a book called Murder at Roaring Water. And he basically like worked for me. And in the book, he says that Bailey said I did it. I killed her, but it was a crime mm -hmm. of passion. Now, I want you all to close your eyes and take your hand and write those words. I did it. I killed her. It was a crime of passion. Now, after writing that, he said, unfortunately, when he told this to the cameraman, the camera wasn't running. Well, unfortunately for him, it was. And this is what Ian Bailey said. John, how long has it been a crime to be eccentric? How long has it been a crime to? I wanted to go on stage and be... You know, isn't, isn't that part of the... I mean, it's really weird that the fucking French, who seem to me, I thought was sort of... Well, we know that they... You know, we know, you know, like... Extramarital affairs and this, that and the other. Um, I'm surprised they didn't charge me with the crime passionale. I mean, you know, if, you, if that's what you're saying, why don't you just like, go out the whole hog and fucking charge me with a crime passionale? What's a crime passionale? It's the thing in, in French law where you can get off because you were in a height of passion when you killed your lover. Well, Jesus. That's nuts. Check it out. It exists in law? It, well, it, it existed for men who killed their, their wives for being, um, mm -hmm. uh, getting it from another... Uh, Part, yeah. Serious? Yeah, serious. I don't know if it still exists, but you check it out. You don't think I make you don't think I make these things up, do you? Fuck! What was that? Ah. Fuck sake, what was that? Okay. No. Uh, get me some water, please. A uh, cup of water. Something just flew into my eye and it's still in there. A wasp! Can you break down that clip, Jim? What was, what was that? What was that about? What does that tell us? Well, it told us that... Hold on, we need the mic. Yeah. Ian is always... You know, he, he just muses on everything. But the important thing is it's the opposite of a confession. Mm -hmm. He's wondering why the French don't charge him with a crime of passion if he knew Sophie, mm -hmm. like they're saying. But you can't say that he said, I did it, I killed her, it was a crime of passion. You can't just fucking report that mm -hmm. if he didn't say it and you weren't there. Mm -hmm. He's implicating me and the cameraman and everybody in holding back a secret. Yeah. 
But I was the only one went in France to the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think it was of any consequence because I knew I had heard this. But I did say to the French prosecutor when she came out after the trial, Bailey was wondering why you didn't try him with a crime of passion. And she went crazy, went off on me, you know, which I understand. But, but it's very important when you're dealing with facts and people's lives and the poor French family who, you know, believe Bailey did it. It's very important that the facts are adhered to, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that the believability of both... It's hard enough for... A I see the policemen outside Tesco and they're trying to stop some fella battering up a homeless guy and they have a fucking terrible job, you know? And they're unarmed. The way I have nothing but respect for the ordinary cop going around doing his job. So it's very important that we maintain that trust. And it's very important that we're allowed to question them and raise questions when it's possible they got something wrong. Mm -hmm. That's just it. Um, thank you so much, Jim, for that chat. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you to all of you for coming out. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, listening to that, that interview with Jim Sheridan. It was a fantastic chat. It was a lovely, lovely to be chatting to someone in front of an audience for the first time in a long time. I'll be back next week and probably have a hot take or something like that. Mind yourselves, enjoy the start of September, rub a dog, and don't be too hard on yourself. Yart. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.